Welcome to the Warnings Doctor podcast with Dr. Jerry Goldhaber. Tune in to learn about what every consumer desperately needs to know in order to avoid serious injury and even death. You'll hear about ways in which consumers, government regulators, and corporations must interact to keep you and your loved ones safe. Hi, this is Dr. Jerry Goldhaber, the Warnings Doctor. I'm the author of the new book, Murder, Inc., How Unregulated Industry Kills or Injures Thousands of Americans Every Year and What You Can Do About It. This podcast is called The Warnings Doctor, and this is the place where I write prescriptions for you to live a safer life in an ever more dangerous world. I do this because we are all playing with a half a deck of cards regarding virtually every product that we buy or use in our lives. Every aspect of our lives is affected. Eating, working, playing, traveling, healing, residing, and even communicating. And why are we playing with a half a deck? Because big corporations won't tell us about the hazards involved in their products. They're placing profit over our safety. And government regulators are supposed to look out for us. Well, they're not doing their job because of what I call the revolving door. That means that most of the regulators, in fact, according to my research, two-thirds of all regulators either come from or go to the exact industries they're supposed to regulate. Sometimes they go to both and the revolving door hits them coming and going. And believe me, folks, the fox is not in the hen house. The fox, in this case, has eaten the hen house. So if big corporations won't tell us, if the government won't tell us, where are we going to find out? And on this podcast, you have my word. I'll tell it like it is. Here you'll get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about product hazards. It's my pledge to you that after every single podcast, you'll say to me, Jerry, I didn't know that, and my goodness, it could have happened to me. Well, let's begin. Some, some say that our safety is at risk right now because of what's happening in the news. And a, no bigger story, as we know, than the coronavirus story. Well, let's talk about it. We are, as a people, ignoring the warnings. We have a president who has recently stated that he wants to open the economy as early as Easter Sunday or as soon as possible, despite the recommendations coming from his scientists and medical authorities. We see in Florida children, teenagers, drinking, cavorting together in very close proximity, totally ignoring social distance. We see people fighting and actually fisticuffs involved in Walmarts over what else? A roll of toilet paper. We see a JetBlue passenger who is waiting for his test results, knowing he may have been exposed, hopping on a plane to Florida and possibly putting every passenger at risk. Why do we do these things? Why do we ignore warnings? And this, I think, goes back to the original uh, foundation of our country, where a bunch of rugged individual patriots took on the British army, and they fought almost what today we call a terrorist fight, hiding behind trees and taking pot shots. Rugged individualism won the Revolutionary War, and it has its time and place. Rugged individualism has led over the generations to our entrepreneurial spirit and the growth of our economy over the hundreds of years that this country has been around. There's nothing wrong with rugged individualism. I like to think I'm an entrepreneur and a rugged individual, but 
there comes a time, and this will be very, very pertinently explained by our guest speaker today, Dr. Ann Barr Thompson, that sometimes when you're a rugged entrepreneurial individual person, you have to go beyond the me and start thinking about the we. If our president at the top of the, the heap of leadership is telling us that we're all in it for the profits of opening up the economy and he's refused to activate the Defense Production Act, which is, in, in my opinion, he's not doing it because he want, he's afraid that if you nationalize industries, that he won't be able to use the socialist argument against the Democrats in the fall. Friends, this is no time for politics. Lives are at stake. Personal protective equipment that our healthcare workers are begging for, begging for, can only be made if the president nationalizes the industries and demands that we go on wartime footing with all industries contributing until our healthcare personnel can protect us and themselves, most importantly. This hasn't happened. We see it happening in countries like South Korea. Why have they flattened the curve so quickly? And why have we not? We have not done it because our curve is going straight up, just like Italy, because of this me alone attitude. People are not keeping social distance. People are demanding to go back to work. Some people are. People in the construction industry say that, and I believe them, they can't go back to work uh, and maintain social distance. So we do have this push and pull between what's good for our economy and what's good for our health. My friends, without our health, there can be no economy. It won't be very easy to go back to construction work or any other work if we're dead. Well, let's go on now to our guest, because our guest speaker today, Dr. Ann Barr Thompson, has a great deal to say about what makes for a good corporate citizen and what's involved in becoming a good corporate citizen and how this relates right now to the struggle we are all facing with the coronavirus. Now for another great interview on The Warnings Doctor with Dr. Jerry Goldhaber. I can't think of a better guest to have today than Anbar Thompson. The Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus once said, we can't choose our external circumstances, but we can always choose how we respond to them. And Anbar Thompson is just the perfect person to help us respond to this crisis today and to help us figure out exactly what we need to do and what we can look for from good, good companies and companies that aren't behaving so well as we respond to the coronavirus and in general. Let me tell you a little about Ann Barr Thompson. She is the author of one of the best-selling books called Do Good, which explains her pioneering model of what she calls brand citizenship, which is a win-win-win solution that's mutually beneficial to people, society, and the corporate bottom line. She was named Trust Across America 2018 Top Thought Leader in Trust. She's been inspiring business leaders to use their brands as a motivating force for change for more than 25 years. And today, she works with business leaders, social entrepreneurs, and impact investors aligning purpose with profit to strengthen loyalty, engage employees, amplify social impact, and deliver on the SDGs, GRI Certified Training in Standards for Sustainability Reporting. And anybody who's listened to The Warnings Doctor knows that my message is to change profit over safety into profit with safety. And what could be better 
than talk about today than Do Good, the book that Ann Barr Thompson wrote, and to have Ann Barr Thompson herself tell us a little about the book. Ann, I want to welcome you as my guest today on The Warnings Doctor, our podcast. How are you doing today, by the way, with this coronavirus? How are you handling it? How am I handling it? I'm, yeah. I'm relatively um, privileged. So we live in, in, you know, a nice apartment in New York. So I have the East River on the side. I actually had a run in the sunlight before this. So um, personally, I'm doing well. We are one degree away from coronavirus. We have some family members and friends who have it. Um, but I think you have to keep focusing on on moving forward and positivity because positivity begets positivity. Well, I hope you and your husband, Ron, are keeping the appropriate social distance when you go out for walks or runs in the park. And uh, let's move back to what your book is all about. I've looked through your book, and it's fascinating what you're trying to do. Can you give us a brief overview? And then I want to get into that, what you call the five-step brand citizenship model and what goes into that model. And then maybe we can apply that in terms of coming up with some examples of what you've observed during the coronavirus to what good companies are doing and maybe not so good companies are doing that you've observed in general and then maybe applying it to what's going on today. So first of all, tell us a little bit about Do Good. What would you like us to know? And then uh, I've got some questions for you. So most importantly, um, Do Good came out during the era of purpose, ESG, the SDGs, and this whole movement. But what's important to know is that the model of brand citizenship started coming into view at the end of 2011 through a trend study that was about a wide range of things and not very specifically about this topic. And in this study, people told us they wanted business to step in and reform society because they didn't believe government was doing so. Uh, Just a quick picture of what was going on at the end of 2011. In the U.S., it was about an election year, the 2012 election. And at that time, we thought partisanship was at its greatest. Uh, We learned that partisanship was going to continue to grow over the next several years. Uh, In the UK, where we also conducted this study, the Tories were in the midst of uh, initiating austerity measures. And people were being told in both countries that we were in recovery mode from the Great Recession, yet they weren't feeling it. So in their comments, through a variety of questions about their hopes, their fears, what they would do with free time, as well as brands they thought exhibited leadership and brands they thought were good or bad citizens, they told us they wanted business to step in and reform society. You're talking about corporate brands that were good citizens and corporate brands that they thought were bad citizens. Is that what you're saying? And they identified the brands? I am, but what's interesting, it wasn't just in that question. It was in their overarching things. When they talked about hopes and fears, um, they also spoke about government not helping things and maybe business needed to step in. There there were little uh, sparks that if you followed them, started creating a new picture of what the role of business was in society, which actually is not necessarily new because this role has been debated for at least 100 years, if not longer, back and forth, depending upon the the decade. Uh, So anyhow, it was an interesting finding to me and an unexpected one. So over the next three to five years, depending upon how you slice or dice it, I ran a series of studies, both qualitative and quantitative, uh, to deconstruct brand leadership, from good citizenship and favorite brands, which we used as a proxy for brand loyalty. And from these studies, from this research, based upon what people told us, 
a five-step model brand citizenship emerged from the grassroots up. So it wasn't something that we created in a corporate boardroom, in a classroom, or anywhere else. It was what people told us were their expectations for how business should behave, aligning something I call the Me to We continuum. So this is what the people told you in, in surveys you conducted about what they considered to be important to a good citizen, a good corporate citizen, right? Is that what you're saying? She would agree, yes, but it wasn't just good corporate citizenship. It was that intersection of leadership, corporate citizenship, and, and loyalty. Okay. And what made a brand those three things for them. And, and they were merging where they used to be much more distinctive. In the United States, I suspect that many people think that the corporate citizenship is about making money and that's all there is to it. But you found differently and you've come up with this model, five-step brand citizenship model. And you've mentioned certain factors that come out of this brand model, such as trust and enrichment, responsibility, and community and contribution. I believe those are the five factors that make up your model. You want to tell us, let's take them one at a time. Trust. What can you tell us about? What does that mean? So trust is, is a very relevant comment uh, to today because what defines our definition of trust is potentially shifting as a result of the pandemic. But at the time between 2011 and 2016, 2017, depending upon, again, how you cut some of these studies, um, what we found was trust is very simple. It's a basic thing that trust is the starting point for a relationship with a brand, with a business, not the end game. And historically, a lot of people in reputation management and brand loyalty would say once you've earned their trust, that's the end. You're in good shape. But actually, in the same way trust is the starting point for a good friend, trust is the starting point for your relationship with a, with a brand, with a business. And if you think of a brand as the human face of a business, your relationship with the brand is your relationship with the business in many ways. I'm and in the field of communication, and in the field of communication, we always taught our students that you have to have what we called source credibility, and the most important factor in source credibility was trust. That means the person who's giving you the message, in this case, your case, the corporation, you've got to believe it. You've got to trust that person. Every salesman is told that in the sales 101. One, there's lots of books out there that say, trust me, trust my product, trust my price. But it always begins with, trust me. Go ahead, Anne. Exactly, exactly. And, and so that's the starting point for developing a, a long-term loyal relationship and something we call faithfulness. Because loyalty to brands does tend to be a faithfulness to them. And people um, with a favorite won't cheat on it. So trust just very quickly, and then we can move on. Uh, down the line is trust is based on clarity so people know where you're coming from they know what you stand for you know the friends you trust the most the family members you trust the most are the ones you know how they'll respond to what you're saying and that's the same thing with a business you know where they're coming from you know what their point of view on the world is so clarity then reliability they deliver what they promise you um, sincerity speak from the heart you know, and that, that's also about transparency and honesty and things of that nature. So be sincere in how you communicate. Give to give, not to get. So don't always uh, have loyalty programs and other things that are about cross-selling. 
have them that actually give people things that benefit them. And then empathic listening. We have all this data that allows us to listen to people. And yet businesses use so much of this data, again, more to cross-sell rather than to offer things that might benefit. Boy, is that relevant today. I was attending a Manhattan Chamber of Commerce uh, town hall the other day, and one of the speakers said, hey, there's so much going at us. Buy me now. I'm on sale. Buy me. Buy me. Do this. Mm -hmm. And he said, the real thing we should do is all take a breath and call our customers, call our vendors, call our clients up and say, hey, we're all in this. How can I help you? Ask them, exactly. what, what can you do to help? How, what can I do to help you? And uh, instead of saying, I've got the answer by me. I think what you're saying is so relevant today, Anne, about trust. I mean, uh, you just have to look at the two. I don't want to get down a political rabbit hole, but you t- t- if, if Donald Trump were a corporation and if Andrew Cuomo were a corporation, I guess your trust factor answers it for itself. Who's empathic? Who's showing feeling and understanding? Whose brand is coming out with facts and information and credible? When I was younger and you you too, you remember Walter Cronkite. He was always called the most trusted man in America. Why? Because of what you just said. I think what you said is so important about the variables that make up trust, the factors, and how it relates to today. Well, and, and also it, it's how in many ways these things reflect my values. So you're mirroring my values, and that's why people trust different things. So if, when you move to trust and you think of this notion of give to give, not to get, um, and empathic listening, they start segueing you into step two, which is about enrichment. And enrichment is make my life better, make, make it more inspiring, make everyday routines feel better. And what's interesting with that is the brands people told us about in these studies that that did these things were, were daily household brands, brands like Mrs. Myers, which is a cleaning brand, and Bert B. I use her soap, by the way. <laughs> ah, well, there you go. So you probably have some of the same feelings. And, and Mrs. Myers is an interesting one I always like talking about because uh, my editor uh, came to me one day and, and picked up the phone and, and said, you're not going to believe what just happened. My housekeeper, who comes from Brazil and hasn't been anywhere but, but the Rio and here, came in, and I've never noticed before that she uses Mrs. Myers, and she had Mrs. Myers on the countertop. Oh, right. And I asked, her, I asked her why she likes Mrs. Myers, and she said to me that it made her feel like she was in a French lavender field when she cleaned. Oh, my daughter told you met my daughter Michelle at a performance of my son's jazz, and she she's the one who told me. She said, "You got to try this Mrs. Myers soap. It's lavender. You're gonna love it." Just like your cleaning lady said. Yeah, <laughs> well, not funny. my cleaning lady, my editor. But um, <laughs> your editor. But, but yeah, that's the thing. That's about how you enrich someone. Well, these life. days, the way books are going, she may end up being a cleaning lady. <laughs> um, but, but also Apple was a brand of enrichment. And Apple was one of the brands in the original study that people said was a good corporate citizen, which surprised us. Because Apple at the time was being lambasted by activists for uh, its chips and things. But yet people told us Apple was a good corporate citizen. And why? Because Apple changed the way I communicate with others. Apple has connected me 
with people across the globe. Apple has brought joy into my life 24-7. And when you think about the notion of enrichment, it starts making sense why people called Apple a good corporate citizen in that period. Um, Ikea was another brand. And Ikea was interesting because we expected them to be a brand of step three, which is responsibility. But for people, Ikea enriched their homes. It made their homes better. And that is Ikea's mission, you know, to, to help the everyday person and bring this beauty into their homes. And, and that was their founder's mission that they, they've written in, in uh, effectively a Bible inside the organization, which ensures this stays true. And I, I heard the really- uh, head of Target say the same thing. She, uh, she was not the head. She's number two in Target. She was giving a speech to a local network group I go to, and she mm-hmm. said, our mission at Target, is our purpose at Target is to actually bring happiness and joy into your homes. It's an interesting way to look at Target, but that's her purpose, she said. And, and then you decide, does, do they deliver on that for you? And if you do, then you're, that's a brand you'll be loyal to. And IKEA is an interesting one to, to think of in terms of moving from enrichment to responsibility because IKEA has so many elements of responsibility embedded in it. And step three, responsibility is a pivot point between being what I call a me brand, so a brand that's about my life, and the we brand, a brand that's about my life but also is about – uh, bettering society in most of its operations and the way it behaves. Boy, does that relate to today, and That relates yeah, to and, today. And I'm sure we'll get into that. So responsibility on a quick path, again, um, uh, through the years that I did the study, is, is all about those traditional um, aspects of corporate citizenship. And actually, there is something that relates very much to today, which we see happening. So when we did the studies, um, treating employees well and fairly, and that extended down through the supply chain uh, because uh, Rana Plaza, which was the big event that happened in Bangladesh with a fire for fashion brands, had happened around that period. And it treat employees well and fairly was the number one aspect of being a responsible brand. And people said they would not give a brand credit for the good it was doing for the environment or other things unless they were treating their employees well and fairly. And over the past two years, with climate change being in the spotlight, I started wondering, has that dynamic you know, flip-flopped? But I haven't done a study recently uh, to, to determine if I needed to recalibrate those things. I have a question for you. I have a chocolate company. A friend of mine makes chocolate for a living. And on the cover of his, and I see this at Whole Foods a lot in the fish department, it says sustainable cocoa. How do you pronounce the chocolate ingredient? And I said, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? He said, well, we don't believe in how the company, we treat those people who pick the the chocolate or the cocoa seeds or cocoa beans uh, Mm -hmm. ethically and sustainably. Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess, right into your responsibility uh, paradigm. Exactly. And and it's also how they grow it. It's giving them a, a living wage and it's how they grow it, that they're growing in a sustainable manner for the land. And what's interesting actually to the whole notion of, of that balance between treating people, treating employees, and even down through the supply training well, and treating the environment well, is right now with what's going on with the coronavirus at the moment, the employees are being heightened again. So what you keep reading about is, are people um, paying for sick leave? Are they covering this? Or are they laying people off? And so that notion of how you care for your resources, which is your human capital, your environmental capital, whole slew of things, becomes 
uh, re rebalanced again. And we're seeing employees come to the forefront. So when people feel the economy is strong, what I'm guessing is the employee start, starts dropping a little bit because we're so concerned with climate change and the environment jumps up. But now where people are at stake and people's health and livelihood are at stake, the notion of treating employees well and fairly jumps right back up to the top. All right, so we've got to trust that we've got to be believed yeah. as a brand. You've got to be showing value and and in, in, into people's home enrichment, and uh, you have to treat people fairly under responsibility and be ethical. Mm-hmm. Now you've got community, which boy, we need today as your fourth yeah. uh, ingredient in this model. Yes, yeah. tell us and about community that. Community actually again takes on a new a new a new viewpoint relative to what's going on. So community is about bringing people together through shared values, and that's both employees, suppliers, it's businesses that get together in, in different trade groups where they share values and trade information. And today we see that notion of community really important going on with coronavirus because uh, if we look at steps three, four, and five, responsibility, community, and contribution, that's where the focus is right now with where companies are focused on delivering and ensuring they have your trust. So responsibility, treat employees well and fairly. For community, yes, connect people through shared values, but also uh, care for your community, give back to your community. And you see how certain tech businesses in San Francisco are donating money to them. Hertz is, is offering free car rentals for health workers in New York. They're caring and catering for their community in there. So we see a different sort of element of what community is now than necessarily how it was calibrated at the onset of the model. And then contribution is about through my purchases, through my association with you, I feel like I'm benefiting the world because you're doing big things to better the world. And right now, that's the real challenge is because contribution is coming from other places, but we do have some businesses that are stepping up and uh, rejigging their their factory lines. Louis Vuitton, for example, their perfume line, they were one of the first brands to step up and rejig their line to create hand sanitizers. You even have local artisan whiskey makers and and craft beer breweries that are rejigging to make hand sanitizers. So contribution now takes on a whole different meaning than it did in the past. Um, Well, it's also becoming uh, quite controversial because with the very uh, difference in philosophy, Governor Cuomo says that we can't rely on corporate contributions right now. There aren't enough. While he's not criticizing the ones who have stepped up, as you mentioned some examples, he's saying that's not enough. the government needs to mandate this and make sure that companies... I just heard before we were doing this, uh, the White House is now talking about it'll take almost a year till the General Motors and Ford rejiggering of their assembly lines could meet the needs for ventilators. So it's it's quite an interesting situation we're on. So your model of trust, enrichment, responsibility, community, and contribution produces good corporate citizens. You've mentioned some along the way. Is there an example that you want to talk about that highlights what is a good corporate citizen and then uh, how do you apply that to what's happening today? Who's a good corporate citizen today, right now? So I think being a good corporate citizen takes on a lot of different faces. And and the whole notion of these five steps is a very fluid model. It's not as if you go step one, two, three, four, and end up at step five. 
that you have to strategically be thought of as a brand of contribution. What we learned through all the research is a brand strategically needs to be positioned at one of the five steps that relates to how they run business, so what their value proposition is. So it would be incredible to be a brand of contribution if your value proposition was not about contributing on any level. But that doesn't mean you can't be a brand that embraces the tenets of contribution. So the model's fluid, and you glide back and forth on it, depending upon what's going on, and respond to these externalities as well as internal factors. So I don't think there's any one brand that exhibits the best citizenship. I think we need to start giving credit to to the number of brands that are stepping up and doing things. And there are so many people or so many businesses that are stepping up. Um, you mentioned Target before, when it can't, comes down to, if you, we think about this notion of start close in and then move further out, so start with your employees, move to the community, and then move to the world. Target, for example, was one of the first retail brands to respond in manners that were helpful to its employees. It established a COVID-19 paid sick leave policy. It provided team members under quarantine with 14 days of paid sick leave before the notion of paid sick leave was being debated. Um, It raised wages for 300,000 frontline workforce by $2 an hour as increased customer demands were being needed. Whenever I've walked into my local grocer over the past two weeks, I thank those guys who are unpacking because they have been working nonstop. And the minute they unpack something, it gets pulled off the shelf. Target's doing that with a $2 an hour increase. For That's great. I, I saw my doorman uh, uh, the other day. Uh, they told me they've seen more packages in this period yeah. of time than ever in their lives and they're just not able to quite keep up. And, you know, to delivery, I sent a gift of some chocolate cake pops to my former wife for her birthday on Monday. And you met Marilyn, and she she got, uh, she has still not gotten them, even though the delivery service said out for delivery now for three days. So it might be next year's birthday before she gets it. We all have to be a little more sensitive. Uh, I wanted to respond to something about this me-we concept, Anne. Uh, it's my belief that you have to go back as a culture to the Revolutionary War in the United States, where we uh, actually were a bunch of ragtag, we'd call them today terrorists, the Continental Army was fighting this Germanic uh, style British Army. And we were all about the and then we were called rugged individualists. That's what they described our, our founders as rugged individualists. And this moved forward. I have nothing against that. I like to think you and I are rugged individualists. We're entrepreneurs. And that entrepreneurial spirit is what has grown America and made it what it is. But if you go too far and you take that concept of rugged individualism and translate it into a me concept, I'm the individual. It's all about me, I, or politics. I and I alone can solve this. And you end up forgetting about the we side. I think if Dumas had written The Three Musketeers in the United States and it was published here, it would have bombed because of this concept. <laughs> all for one and one for all was hardly an American concept. And the French today are, again, it's easy for European countries to get into the we mentality as we confront this. We're ignoring warnings. We see the paper hoarders and we see uh, kids getting drunk in the parties on the beaches. We see politicians opening up the beaches for economic gain. And you wonder if this we mentality is, is if absolutely we need it, 
But the me seems to be, it's like a push and pull thing. You have a president who wants to open the economy for me, me, me reasons. Just like he, get, he sees that as a way to get reelected, even though it kills thousands of Americans along the way. That's just collateral damage. So your book is so timely as we confront this. Uh, it's just my belief that this we really need a lot more of the we and a lot less of the me here. And if we could get some corporate leaders involved in this movement, it would be so great today with this virus. I would actually argue that corporate leaders are getting really involved in the movement. And what we have to do is step back for a minute and think. So how many businesses had a global pandemic in their crisis plans? I don't think many had that. They probably had more things to do with terrorism and other things we've experienced over the past several years, but especially those businesses in the West probably are not, they weren't prepared for anything of this nature or this size. So we have to give the companies that are doing little things first that they can do out of the box credit for these things. Can you and point to one good one right now? Spoke about Target, for example, doing something. Pepsi, okay. with, if you move out, Target was about its employees, close home. Pepsi, if you go to community, um, provided $100,000 to Feeding Westchester, where it's, it's, it's uh, headquartered. Um, it's also partnered with the USDA and Baylor Collaborative on Hunger to um, deliver a million food boxes to students in rural America with a million dollar commitment for that. It's invested 11 million to provide food, water, and other supplies to communities around the world um, affected by COVID. It's donating 200,000 to Red Cross in Italy, um, each of Italy, not in total, Italy, Spain, France, 100,000 to the Red Cross in Lebanon, and it goes further and further out as it oh, goes. That's great. It's I've got one that's bad right here locally, and uh, I got one right here in New York City. I wouldn't give them grades of anything above a D. It's Dolan, who owns the Knicks organization in Madison Garden. He has yet to commit to paying his employees. Major League Baseball has already set up a fund of uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars I got today in an email on that said we're going to pay all of our ticket takers and our uh, refreshment vendors and uh, the greenskeepers and all those folks in this uh, who are at the lower end of Major League Baseball. And I've seen Major League Baseball players and football and basketball players step up and donate millions of dollars for meals. And here we get right here in New York City, where this city is in ground zero. And uh, to show us his example, he has yet to commit to paying his people, which is a no-brainer to me. But uh, anyway, Ann Barr Thompson, the author of Do Good, what a perfect guest to have on today as we talk about the coronavirus, as we talk about safety warnings, and we have as our guest the author of Do Good, Ann Barr Thompson. I want to thank you very much, Ann, and you and Ron, please stay safe, be well, keep walking outside, and keep your distance. All right. Thank you, Jerry. Take care. What a great guest uh, Ann Barr Thompson is. Talk about a guest for the Times telling us all about how good companies are behaving in this time of crisis. And I'm glad there are some good corporate citizens out there branding themselves in a positive light. Well, I promised you when I did this podcast that I'd give you some information that at the end of the day, you might say, I didn't know that. Well, and it could have happened to me. Let me take you down to my book, Murder, Inc., which, by the way, if you're interested in it, you can pick it up on murderincbyjerrywithag.com. That's murderinc, 
by Jerry with a G dot com. And it'll take you right to Barnes and Noble because Amazon's having trouble these days because of all the other stuff. They've kind of put a pause on books. But at any rate, you can get that book by going to murderincbyjerry.com. Just to give you a little taste that I want to do every podcast, this is something right out of my book. I call it the Corporate Prime Directive, Lie, Hide, and Deny. Most companies have a history of hiding, denying, obfuscating, ignoring, or outright lying about vitally important safety hazards that you, the consumer, and your family need to know about before you decide to buy or use a product. For most of the 20th century, the tobacco industry tried to convince us that the jury was still out on the dangers of smoking. We all know that jury wasn't out very long. Even longer than that, the sugar industry has tried to hide the amount of sugar in almost everything we eat by using both a foreign language, the metric system, which almost no Americans understand, to tell us the amount of sugar in a product. And they try to disguise its very identity, hiding in plain sight behind such esoteric and totally non-understandable terms as dehydrated cane juice, high fructose corn syrup, maltodextrin, and one of my favorites, Mannose, another one, Muscovado, and Pinocchio. I don't even know what that means. And there were 55 more where those came from. I guess that's better living through chemistry, folks. Well, tips like that can be found throughout my book, Murder, Inc., available right now at murderincbyjerry.com. It'll take you to the Barnes & Noble website, and this shipping books out almost immediately. If you want the ebook, you still can get that on Kindle at Amazon. And very soon, we're going to have the Audible available, probably in the next two or three weeks. And we do have jerryonyoutube.com. If you can't wait till the next podcast, you can catch me on jerry with a G on youtube.com. We drop two episodes every week. There's a backlog there. Enjoy yourself while you're shut in by looking at jerryonyoutube.com. And until our next podcast, I want to remind all of you folks, remember, the more informed you are, the safer you'll be. This is Dr. Jerry Goldhaber, the Warnings Doctor saying goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Warnings Doctor with Dr. Jerry Goldhaber, where you can always find a new prescription to keep you safe in an ever-evolving and sometimes more dangerous world. Remember, the more informed you are, the safer you'll be.